Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Brainwaves. You're listening to 8.55am 3CR Community Radio. My name is Kiara and with me today is Lauren. Um, and today we are interviewing Simon Cattell. Uh, Simon Cattell is a community consumer advocate. As an advocate, Simon's role is to stand with consumers so that their voice and rights are protected at all times. This role is part of a broader passion for social justice, where Simon studied law, politics and psychology. Uh, Simon has also worked in community development and education in Australia and East Timor. He has experience teaching and working in politics and policy for Griffith University, the University of Melbourne, and the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Simon believes that these qualities and his lived experience of mental illness will help him promote uh, consumer voices with the aim of improving the mental health system. Welcome to Brainwave, Simon. Thanks for having me, guys. It's all right. Um, so we're going to be having a bit of a, a chat about, you know, your role as an advocate, um, you know, and talking about consumer rights. Um, so can you actually explain for our listeners and for me as well, because I don't exactly know what a consumer and community consumer, community consumer advocate actually is and does. Can you explain that for everyone, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a long title. Uh, I apologize. It's a tongue twister. <clears throat> it is, it is. I'll have to clear my throat for a long answer. Um, no, look, it's a it's a pretty broad term, and I, th- I suppose you can uh, just call it a consumer advocate, really. Um, but I guess the the role, you know, depending on the organisation that you work for, it kind of varies. But the main aim of it is to identify the needs of consumers that you're working with, and um, you know, the needs might be around treatment, about around certain aspects of discrimination they're experiencing in the community. Um, you know, any number of things, their interaction with services, um, you know, and problems that they're having there, identifying their needs and goals in that space and, and working with them collaboratively to, to I guess, realise those goals. Um, and so that can sort of take on a number of different avenues and it can look pretty differently um, based on the organisation you're working for, but also based on the types of goals people are looking for. You know, if you if it's a discrimination issue, then... You know, you, you have different services that you link them in with and, and different types of conversations that you have. If it's in an inpatient setting, you know, it, it takes on different dimensions there and you have, you know, I guess, I guess different options available to you. Um, but, you know, it's all, I suppose, um, representational or directions-based advocacy. And that's really how you do it in the sense that you take direction from the consumer that you're working with. Um, so it, it differs in other ways from other types of advocacy, which might be um, best interest advocacy. And that would be where... Um, you kind of you, you work with the person, the consumer, but you ultimately are the one who decides, you know, what the best outcome is for them, and you advocate for that, taking into account their considerations. Uh, directions-based or or representational advocacy that um, that I've always practiced as a consumer advocate in the organisations I've worked for is is where you largely take direction from those consumers. Um, so identifying what goals they want, and and you pursue those with them. And it's about not making, you know, passing judgment on whether you agree or disagree with those goals. It's about sort of empowering those people and, and making sure they have that autonomy to direct their own life. And, and and the consumer aspect of it is obviously connecting on the basis of your lived experience. So with a lot of the people that I w- work with, I'll disclose that, you know, I have my own lived experience of mental health issues and, and 
while it differs in many in many ways to what you might be experiencing there might be some some points of connection that we have and you know i definitely use that and um in my work and it also gives me an understanding i suppose of some of the the politics politics of experience that that people with lived experience um go through Mm. Yeah, it's really good to have that connection with people, especially when they're going through mental illness. It becomes such an important thing to have somebody sort of know what you're going through. Yeah. Um, so what has been your experience of working in a psychiatric setting? Look, I mean, uh, not that much, I suppose, if, if you're going to quantify it. It's, it's, only been about, it's only been about a year that I've been working in this space. Um, so it's been a steep learning curve. Um, but, you know, you know, qualitatively, it's been a really good experience. Um, you know, I've really en- enjoyed sort of going into that space. It's been incredibly eye-opening. Um, you know, you, you see, I suppose, the firsthand the kind of the challenges that people um, with lived experience face, but also the way that multiple barriers, you know, and, and, and I guess um, social events can impact on people, bringing them into that space, you know, that... Um, Although I have my lived experience, I sort of enjoy a lot of privileges. Um, you know, as being a white heterosexual middle class male, like I enjoy a lot of privileges there. But you actually see in those spaces that there are people who have multiple sites of oppression and barriers that you know that that make them much more likely to go into that space. And um, yeah, so that's been a really eye opening experience for me. Um, and you also, you know, you, although I'm not advocating um, from a service provider perspective, I see the challenges that they face day to day and. You know, you do have an appreciation of the fact that I'm advocating um, for the consumer's um, points of view means that I don't I don't have to make any decisions. Um, so you get a sort of a uh, an appreciation as well as well of you know the really difficult role that people in those settings have. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I understand that Lauren, you actually saw Simon speak at the uh, VicSurf conference earlier this year. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can you, um, I wasn't there, unfortunately. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what your talk at the VicSurf conference was actually about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was, you know, the, uh, the thing that was really occupying my mind on, based on the advocacy that I was doing then was the rights of uh, voluntary patients or voluntary consumers. I, I use patients because that's the, the word in the, in the act. But, um, and that, you know, there's been some really really cool reforms that have come into place in the last couple of years in, in Victoria around the Mental Health Act and, you know, really clarifying the rights that people have when they're involuntary and um, and, and the mechanisms that they have to achieve those rights. And, and I suppose services like, uh, you know, some of the new services that have cropped up out of that. But I, I had noticed that there's a, there's a bit of a gap as a result of the sort of new focus on the Mental Health Act is and that that's, there's no real clarification or articulation of what the rights are of voluntary patients or voluntary consumers. Um, there are, you know, there are sort of uh, more broad general principles, you know, of my understanding within law that they have. They have, you know, right of consent to refuse treatment and things like that. But the, those rights aren't articulated. They aren't enforced, and um, they're not clarified to the same extent that they are under the Mental Health Act. So you can kind of have this inverse thing of, in some ways, you, you know, and, and you hear this a lot from consumers. That, or the, at least I do, that they sometimes feel like they have less less rights under the Mental Health Act because they're not sure when they're not under the Mental Health Act because they're not really sure what their rights actually are. And, you know, if you're not sure what they are, they just they don't come into effect in practice. Mm. And so I think that was a real passion for me. And um, I was lucky to get a lot of people that were a lot more experienced and smart than me <laughs> on a panel. And um, 
and, and to talk about some of those issues, you know, people who have been in that space for a long time and, and that have noticed and observed these things and, yeah, some really cool things came out of it. Yeah, so one of the things that I learnt about was the whole idea behind advanced statements and so do you want to just explain for our listeners what an advanced statement is and why somebody might want to have one? Yeah, absolutely. So an advanced statement, and they get called plenty of different things across you know plenty of different states as well, is it's essentially at its bare bones, I guess, an articulation of the type of treatment that you want um, and why. You know, and I suppose that, what is it, the articulation of the treatment that you don't want and why. So it's you know it's a document that um, you know that comes under the Mental Health Act, and it you know uh, you you get to write down your treatment preferences. So. It would be something like, um, you know, oh, these particular medications work for me, um, you know, and uh, this this is the reason why they, they work because I've had experience with this, you know, in the past and that, and that was really helpful. The, you know, maybe sensory modulation or something like that, that was really helpful for me, especially when I'm anxious and I'd prefer to have that than, than say, this other type of medication. Um, you know, inversely, it's also got um, uh, the fact that the things that haven't worked for you, you know, so you might say that for, you know, electroconvulsive therapy was, you know, not very helpful for me. And I should note that a lot of people do find it very helpful for them, but a lot of people will write in there that, you know, they um, they don't find it helpful and it was really traumatic for them and they give the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And so I guess under the Mental Health Act, that needs to be uh, needs to be considered. It doesn't have to be followed. Um, by the by the treating team um, but if it's not followed they have to give written reasons um, as to why they're not following each aspect of it so if you've got you know six or seven things in there there needs to be six or seven uh, responses as to as to why that's not being followed and that's really good you know, you know I suppose in an empowering sense for the consumer but it's also good um, because it um, it gets it gives them the information that they need to make you know decisions in the future as well you know. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a document that details you know, when someone's in a place of wellness, what mm. works for them, what doesn't work for them, decisions mm. that they essentially make for themselves yeah. so that when they become <coughs> unwell, the people around them know what they actually want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so ideally, you know, it's done in the community and, and at a point in time where you are feeling really well. So they're still done to some extent when you're in an inpatient unit. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, the ideal situation would be when you when you're in the community and, and you're sort of putting that down, at, you know, at a time where you're not time pressured and, and you know not stressed. Is that uh, done with an advocate? So who's actually involved in the process? You can, as a consumer, you can involve whoever you want in that process, really. So, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of benefits, and you know, to to whoever you choose. You know, as an advocate, I suppose we're independent of the treating team, so there's some benefits to that that you you might feel like you can articulate things in a really open and honest way. Um, you might want to do it with a carer, and that person, you know, the benefit to that is that that person knows you you really well, and um, you know knows can give you an alternative perspective on it, and you know, or you know, can sort of work through some of those issues with you. Um, and there's also, you know, you can do it with a service provider as well if you have a good relationship with them, and you know, and you know, I suppose the benefit out of that is that they have you know a lot of understanding of you know clinical mental health, and you know, and can talk through some of those processes with you. And you know, there's there's benefits and negatives to each of those things. Some of the, some people will want that separation from the service. Some people want a connection with it because it'll open open up dialogue. I think at its core, though, it needs to be an expression of that consumer's. You know, it's different to a management plan or you know a, a recovery plan done by a service or a treatment plan done by a, by a service. This document really does need to be an expression of that consumer's you know, uh, treatment goals and, and preferences, I guess. Yeah, that was one of the questions we had was how do families and carers fit into the advanced statement? Like how their voices might not necessarily be represented, but how do they work with that? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. And I mean, I, I, I should note that I'm not speaking 
um, strictly from that perspective. So I would never want to say that I, you know, I speak for those people. Um, my understanding or view, I suppose, like uh, you know, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily the right one is those people are involved to the extent that the consumer wants them to be to be involved. And so for some people, family is going to be a magnificent support, you know, and that that will carry them through those tough times, and they have that broader understanding. For other people, relationships are, you know, not where they'd like them to be. And at this point in time, they don't they don't want the family to be involved in that uh, or a carer to be involved in that. It's really, uh, from my perspective, it's really to what extent the consumer wants that involvement, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's such a contentious topic because the Mental Health Act that recently came out says that, you know, family and friends or family and friends – Family members and carers should be more involved, you know, in the decisions that are made. However, at the end of the day, like you said, it comes down to what the consumer wants. And if the consumer, like you said, doesn't have a great relationship with their family members or carers, then they ultimately decide who is involved in their in their treatment and who's not. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it is, that is just, it's a really tough space because I can, you know, I can, um, you know, to some extent empathise with the challenges that, carers would have as well especially being isolated from that decision making process mm. if they've got a large role in in that person's well-being um and yeah i mean that that is really challenging i think that's just the nature of mental health is you've got a number of competing perspectives knowledges and and interests you know at play and i guess the best the best people you know the people who come out the best are the ones that can kind of hold all those perspectives at once and, and try to navigate it and you know together you know rather than sort of assuming one directly over another but like i said obviously i think privileging consumer perspectives in an advanced statement is probably paramount so this is a pretty big question so it might take us a while to sort of tease it out what is the difference between a voluntary and an involuntary patient yeah yeah no it, it, it is a it's a big question i suppose there's um you know put simply one one's under the mental health act one isn't so one's being treated you know by their own will and and one one isn't to a large extent um you know as it, I'll, I suppose I'll talk about the involuntary patient first and, and like I said that's someone who falls under the mental health act and um, that's someone that you know the treating team decide um you know in the absence of, of compulsory treatment would um uh, be a risk of uh, to themselves or, or to others or, or deterioration of themselves um so you know that means they fall the sort of uh, decision making around uh, treatment falls to the treating or consultant psychiatrist and um uh yeah the the, the mental health act also though says that you know supported decision making is a is a core part of that that um decision making process and i think that's one of the new developments under the mental health act is that you know even though the ultimate decision making responsibility falls with your treating or consultant psychiatrist it actually you know you've got to make sure that this is a supported decision making process where you know you're given a right to information you're able to exercise things like an advanced statement you can get a nominated person which is you know a really sort of great way that carers um, and family members can get involved in that space um, and um, you know you got rights to second opinions and and um, you know things like that rights communication yeah so you've got sort of you know, you are being, um, I suppose, falling within the ambit of the state in terms of compulsory treatment. But by the same token, while it sort of puts constraints on what you can and can't do, it opens up certain rights as well. Um, and then, yeah, you've got the you've got um, voluntary patients um, or voluntary consumers, and um, I guess that's 
that's I'm I'm kind of a little bit unsure about that, and that's kind of why I sort of convened those those intelligent people <laughs> to uh, to do that panel because it's it's not totally clear. I don't think I don't think it's something that we really need to tease out a little bit more. Um, you know, on, on a simple level, I guess it's you know you, you're a person who has the ability to to move freely, to um, uh, refuse con- refuse consent to certain treatments, you know, to kind of choose and, and navigate the way that you know they want their mental health treatment to go. Um, I suppose, you know, that it gets a bit problematic for the reasons I was talking about before is that there's not a clear articulation of rights. Um, and there's two there's two things, I guess, um, you know, how, having briefly worked in this space and hearing from, from other people and, and uh, my experience of having worked uh, for a while is that there's two main, I guess, issues that kind of arise. One is that there's, a, I guess, a, a, a coercive element sometimes to people's experience. And that can be where, you know, they're nominally voluntary, but, um, you know, in actual, pra- in actual fact, they don't really feel like they are voluntary. Either, either they are being coerced or have they, they have the experience of being coerced. And that might mean that, you know, you're voluntary until such time that you, you, know, you refuse treatment, or, and at which case you will be put on an assessment order. And from a, from a person's, uh, you know, that's a really challenging experience, you know, from, uh, from someone who's come into a service voluntarily you know, and then decided that, you know, they don't, don't like the way things are running for whatever reason. Um, and, um, you know, they decide they don't want to have treatment or they don't want to leave or they dis- disagree with that aspect of the treatment. Maybe they think this other medication was better for them. And at that point in time, they're, they're put on, you know, uh, under a compulsory treatment order. Um, or they're not, or they're told that if they don't do so, they'll be put on, on a compulsory treatment order. It's not totally clear in that instance, I guess, what kind of rights they have. Yeah. Can I ask... Is this does this just apply for the public um, sector? So I know that there's kind of inpatient units in the, the private sector and in the public sector. Yeah. Can you just explain? You know, when would an advanced treatment order kind of come into it if someone does refuse to be a voluntary patient? An advanced statement. Um, no, no. Or, or, community sorry. treatment order. Community, community sorry, community treatment <laughs> order. We've amalgamated the two. Wow. It's reform, reform city, city here right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. You understood what I meant. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Our yeah, listeners didn't, are yeah, probably yeah, yeah, clueless. Yeah. have got no idea what's going on. Ignore me. No. Um, yeah, so what's, when would it, what, what's the difference between the two? Between being voluntary and, and being on a compulsory treatment order, you mean? In or? a in a public and a private. Setting. Oh, in a private and a private setting. Yeah, um, I'm not. A, I don't know that much about private settings because I don't do advocacy in that space very much. Um, but uh, and I can speak anecdotally, but I wouldn't wouldn't expect my listeners to take this as as you know gospel truth or anything. But that is that um, when you're in a in a private institution, um, you you essentially have the ability to refuse consent, and um, you know you can you have all the same rights that anyone else in the community has around medical treatment. Um, I have known of some consumers that I work with in the past and and currently that have been in private institutions and then they've refused consent. At that point of refusing consent, they've been sent to a, a public institution. So that's really challenging for those consumers as well because obviously that you know they they're trying to voluntarily access services and, you know, at a certain point in time where they, you know, want to remove themselves from that or change dynamics of that treatment, you know, they become involuntary. So, I, but I don't know too much about the, the private space and, and the people who can better speak to that. Um, 
but yeah, I, I suppose. It, and the, the other the other part of it, I was sort of saying before, was that like there's there's two issues that I've observed anyway. The first and the really obvious one is the the coercive stuff where um, the the consumers face and. Um, and also, I should note that there'd be really different experiences about this from a service provider perspective, and they'd have um, reasons for why they're doing the things they're doing as well. Um, I, you know, I'm just speaking from a consumer perspective. Um, there's another aspect to it, which is, again, kind of what I was alluding to a little bit earlier, which is that you know you don't really have, I guess, what, what they call like positive rights. Um, and that means you you don't you know, the Mental Health Act kind of gives you these negative rights, which are, you know, kind of, uh, I'm using the hand signal of pushing away, like, you know, uh, rights from invasion of your, you know, rights away from the state, basically, you know, that they can't do certain things to you. Um, But I think in rights discourse, there's been a movement recently towards um, positive rights, which means you have a positive right to access certain things. And as a voluntary, you know, voluntary consumer, sometimes they talk about the fact that, when they're voluntary, they actually don't get access to the services that they want, you know, and, and, and there's a real issue of access and, and there's an equal issue with with some some of the consumers that I was working with um, where, you know, they, they would say, they would go to the service voluntarily and um, they'd say, look, I need these particular things to keep me safe and to, to make me feel well and, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, whether it be funding capacity and things like that, the service will say, well, we don't do that, we do this stuff so you can kind of take that or leave it. And so there's, I suppose, uh, you know, you know, if they're looking for a lot of these psychosocial kinds of things in an inpatient setting, do you have a vol- do you have a positive right to expect certain things from a service? Not just to expect to, you know, like the mental health act says, prevent them from doing particular things to you, but can you ask things of a service? And do you have a right to ask things of a service? And I suppose that's something that I'd like to, you know, I'd like more intelligent people to sort of take up and, and explore a bit. Mm. So there's a big thing about voluntary patients not really feeling voluntary when they're in the system, which can create a lot of issues. Um, Some things that we've written down here, things like being able to leave the building or having visitors or going on smoking breaks and things like that, they've sort of become (laughs) controversial-ish topics. Um, Do you want to speak a little bit more about those? Yeah, I mean, those can be, um, you know, really um, difficult um, things for for consumers and service providers. I think <laughs> I should know. I mean, the smoking the smoking ban, which a lot of people have been talking about, um, is a particularly political one, um, and and a lot of consumers, um, um, you know, get really upset by that. Especially when smoking's been a a real coping mechanism for those people for a long period of time. Not just you know, like for the for the effect of the cigarettes, but it's actually bonding a way that they bonded. Um, so as a voluntary consumer, sometimes you go into that space and, you know, your main coping mechanism is, is taken away from you and things can kind of like devolve from there. Like, you know, you can <laughs> you can see you can see that and, and and I suppose I was sort of saying it's really tough for consumers, but it's really tough for um for service providers too. I, a lot of you know, a lot of the nurses that I've spoken to hate it. Because they know that it's just going to make their relationship with consumers a lot worse, and they want to have a therapeutic relationship with the consumers. And you know, you sometimes you go into inpatient settings, and because people will have to go off, get leave to go off the grounds to to go smoke. And uh, you know, some nurses will say to me, they feel like they're not doing anything anything therapeutic anymore. They're policing, policing stuff. You know, they've got a the consumer has to come up and ask if they can have some cigarettes and a lighter, and then you know, go out and they've got to be back within fifteen minutes and. None of, none of that's going to, you know, create a kind of therapeutic relationship with those. And those these people. are voluntary patients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so it it uh it is a bit bizarre. 
Um, okay. but, so yeah. From a human rights perspective, what you're saying is that the word voluntary isn't really voluntary. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would say, I'd say certainly it's it's certainly getting redefined anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think in 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 the eyes of consumers who go in there voluntary, it certainly doesn't map out that way for for, for a lot of people, for a mm. lot of people. Um, and I just think it's really important that I guess we have a conversation about what what does it mean to be voluntary in these spaces you know what rights do you have can we can we get you know someone some somebody or some organization or you know some people in parliament to start articulating what these rights are in other jurisdictions they do start to articulate these rights so i don't see why we can't do it here because it kind of creates a bit of a a power vacuum you know when you because you know when you're under the mental health act you're you know under the ambit of the state and there's um i guess uh, clear articulation of, but w- what happens when that happens is the state actually has to prescribe how much power, you know, people have and, and the kinds of rights you have. When you're in that voluntary space, there's no real prescription of the types of power or the scope or extent or how that power can be used and things like that. And and, and again, I'm not articulating that as if people are malevolent or anything like that, but um, it just it it becomes very vague. And with that uncertainty, is you know, there's a lot of anguish for consumers. And so there's a real vacuum in terms of, you know, the rights that they have. Mm. Okay. So I'm thinking, you know, if people do want to start having this, you know, type of conversation or people want to do voice their opinions, want to voice their opinions, what what can they do if people feel as though that they have been in voluntary settings where they feel as though it hasn't been um, a positive, you know, experience for them? What do they do? Where are the places that they can go? I'm putting you on the spot here. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, Simon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and I suppose, um, yeah, that it, it's a tough one because you know they, a lot of consumers uh, come from from backgrounds where they face lots of barriers. So they're you know their voices aren't heard a lot. You know, when we a lot of the people I talk to aren't the voices heard in mental health week. You know, and I, I really hope that those voices start to start to get brought into these conversations um, during mental health week. But I suppose some things they can do is they can. Um, you know, and I don't want to put this organisation on the spot, but there's a peak representative body called the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council, and they do a lot of Vimeac. this. Vimeac, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, they're a great organisation, and and you know they do a lot of systemic advocacy, and um, you know I think they're you know that might be an avenue where you can go talk talk to those people, and um, you know I'd, I'd suggest starting your own peer group as well. You know, we start to have conversations about these things. Utilise social media. Utilise you know community radio and things like this you know? yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly you know i think that's that's really helpful i mean um and just start to have those comments you know if you ever grab the ear of a you know martin foley or anything like that you know just have a yarn to him um about voluntary rights um you know those those types of things i think are really important I, I, I don't know though because because like i said there's people who face multiple barriers who don't have access to computers and and um, you know, have literacy issues and, and, and things like that, and and uh, you know, I think as a, it's kind of a responsibility of us as as a community, both as consumer community and service provider community, to find a way to promote those those voices um, in a way that they feel safe. And I also should suggest, don't say anything that you feel is going to make you feel unsafe or you know have a detrimental impact on your life. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, great. Well, we are out of time, Simon, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, You've been listening to Brainwaves, 8.55 a.m. 
Um, stay tuned for Renegade Economists. You can listen to podcasts of our show at brainwaves.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.